our physical location for those of us in the Abbotsford area um, and where we meet as a as a live gathering is on the physical or the lands of the Semiamu, Stolo, and Kwatlin peoples. And we love this land and we love those people. And um, we want to just express our appreciation each Sunday for them sharing this land with us. Um, so I'm I'm just gonna stop for the for the rest of the um, announcements at this point and just you know acknowledge that um, I um, I was not on my best behavior last Sunday, and um, the good news is that I'm unable to do that particular trick again this week. So there's that. Um, but, or rather, or, and also, um, I just wanted to tell you kind of some of the things that I've been learning and experiencing this week. So events in our lives that disrupt like our regular patterns are extremely helpful in demonstrating how much or little um, we have changed. So being forcibly removed, from our gathering last Sunday and spending two days in a hospital bed has given me the opportunity to see how my image of God has adjusted over time. So I'll, I'll sum up. Um, I did not once consider asking God why, as if God had allowed or orchestrated my fall. That's a really good change for me. I didn't ask, what did I do to deserve this? Because I have come to understand that things happen without judgment. And I didn't feel any alienation from God. And I didn't question God's love for me. Instead, I felt God's care and love and presence in your faces, through your kindnesses. While I'm eating meals, you have provided. I've heard God's voice through your texts and your emails and your calls. And I am moved by how undeterred and how relentless God's love and presence is with me, even when I'm needy, which I hate being needy. Thank you, sweet all, for reflecting love, God's love to me this week. Um, this is Pride Month. Um, I think that's kind of worldwide, but I'm, I'm not exactly sure. And next Sunday is going to be our Pride Sunday. And so I, I just want to make a couple comments on this. One is, um, if you watch the news, um, you will know that there has been um, uh, an American denomination, for sure. I don't know if this bleeds into Canada or not, um, that has um, made it clear that Anyone who comes under the queer umbrella is not welcome uh, in their churches. And uh, extremely sad 
and uh, and anyone who leads cannot have any sort of um, uh, desire to include. It has to be very, it's a very strict, hard line. And so when you consider that what we're doing this month is just specifying these folks who have been alienated on a lot of fronts, the fact that a church is the one who is saying, um, no, no way, Jose, um, it's really sad. My daughter-in-law messaged me the other day and uh, in, in response to what had happened in this denomination. And um, she said, you know, there is no hate like Christian love. And it broke my heart because while they're excluding a group of people, they are singing Jesus loves me. And uh, that is heartbreaking. So let, let's just be praying for um, the pride or the, the queer community for, um, for feeling love and acceptance and finding places where they can settle in and be themselves. And, um, and for the church at large, who seems to not be able to turn that corner. Also today is um, Juneteenth, uh, Juneteenth, I think that's what it's called. Um, and that is a celebration, um, particularly in the States um, for, uh, for folks who were affected by slavery. And it's a celebration of freedom. And I think that it's lovely that we um, can come alongside that and cheer for freedom on all fronts, but particularly um, for those who have been in slavery and are now um, still affected by slavery or live with the residue of slavery, um, we just wanna say, we're so glad you're free and, uh, and we celebrate you and we want to um, acknowledge that we too want to be part of the freedom for you. What we're gonna do next is a Visio Divina and Herta Clausen is going to um, be leading us in that. Herta used to be a local artist and now she's uh, an artist who lives just outside of Merritt. Um, I have um, appreciated Herta's friendship for like, now it might be that we knew of each other for nearly 20 years um, and we've had some significant experiences over the years uh, including a trip to China together um, that have really uh, solidified um, at least for me um, has solidified my um, love and appreciation for how how Herta demonstrates her faith in her art. And uh, I love getting the Instagram photos of whatever she's been uh, painting and working on and how she finds such beauty all around her. And so she's gonna use a piece of her art today to lead us in Visio. And I love that she doesn't have to be right here in town to do that. So, um, 
welcome Herta and please lead us. Thank you. I imagine this is my chance to talk now. Um, I haven't done this before, so this is a first, so hopefully I'm doing this right. Um, I imagine that you're all seeing um, the picture um, that I sent. There it is. Okay, got it. Um, <clears throat> this is a partly finished painting. And uh, I hope you all recognize those, those little yellow bursts of sunshine. Um, I wanted something that wasn't finished uh, to kind of show you today, just because so much of life isn't finished. And I thought maybe we could relate to that a little better than something that's all polished and beautiful, which we love too. Um, I, was, I did a few dandelion paintings and I called it beauty in the ordinary. I love to find, find beauty in just what's around me. So hence uh, the dandelions. Now I'm going to introduce the Visio Divina. I'm not, I'm, I don't wanna assume that everyone's done one before, but, um, and so therefore I'll just explain to you a little bit of uh, what it means. Visio Divina is the practice of sacred seeing. It's a prayer practice that creates space to listen and pay attention to the holy in our lives. Based on the sixth century monastic practice of Lectio Divina, where the object of prayer is a passage of scripture, Visio Divina allows the spirit to speak through images. So um, just take a minute just to take a couple of deep breaths and just settle in, look at the picture. If you do want to share anything in comments, you're welcome to do that. Um, <clears throat> So now I just want you, you know, as you settle in, move your awareness from your head into your heart. And know that God can be known through many different forms and images. Be present and be open. So allow your eyes to gaze on this image. Let them sweep the whole picture. Notice shapes colors, lines, details. Look for symbols. Notice if there is a place on the image where your eye is invited to linger. Are you called back again and again to a certain detail or color? Try not to think about it too much. Just notice. Also notice where your eye might be avoiding or passing over. Which part inspires you? Where do you experience resistance? Slowly become aware of the place on the image that is just for you today. It might be a color, a shape, a tiny detail. Just stay there for a little bit. Be open and present to it.
Take a second longer look. Open your imagination. As you reflect on your place on the image, what feelings or longings come up for you? Are there any memories or hopes that are stirring? Just make room within your heart for whatever wants to emerge for you. Don't judge, don't critique, be present. Just simply be and open to your heart to whatever wants to rise up. Slowly begin to notice what, what's being revealed in your seeing and through what you're feeling. What might be the invitation to you today, this at right now, this moment? In the day-to-day -day life that you're living, what is God calling you to do or to be? Did you gain any insights? Is there an invitation growing in you? So let go, rest, and just enjoy a few moments of stillness in this space. And if anyone wants to share in chats, if anything came up, Please do. Thanks. If I can, I'll just quickly share here for myself. Um, I did the Visio Divina myself earlier. And what came up for me was the little, the little bud, unopened dandelion bud, kind of nestled right in the lower section, right in the middle in the dark. And I thought, you know, sometimes life, when things are dark, um, all I can see is the darkness. But to me, it, it reassured me that sometimes something is going to be grow out of this, bloom out of this darkness. And that's my hope. That's my hope today. If you're not on chat, um, I'll just um, read a couple of the responses. I'm drawn to the unopened dandelion head at the top, and it speaks of potential to me. Uh, Steve said, this is my first Visio Divina. I had at least 50 IU. I don't, 
is that like doctor speak or something? I don't know what an IU is, but anyways, um, I think that's that good. My, that was my wife, Karen's beautiful language there. Um, it is. <laughs> she had 50 ideas. Oh, I see. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Um, um, so after two days in hospital, you want to be rude about doctors. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> oh, like, don't even get me started. Um, Dave or Sherry said everything in its time. Helen says, I avoided the darkness and didn't even see the bud. Perhaps I should take time to dwell in the darkness and see what is there. It's interesting. Carol said I was drawn to the bud also. And Steve or Karen, I had at least 50 things that came from that. But thank you so much, Herta. Okay. It is really interesting how just using imagery um, can draw stuff out of us that we didn't know was there. So thank you for sharing your art this morning and your, your thoughts, Herta. And we're going to move over to Mark and Leah um, to lead us in communion. Okay, we've got a, a picture coming up that's going to illustrate um, a depiction of God. There it is. Okay. So if you take a look at it, the picture before us uh, depicting our belief in God and who God actually is evokes a God who has so many amazing colors and layers of love that it seems to show that our God cannot be fully contained in our hearts and minds. What a beautiful illustration of a limitless creator. At the bridge, we've often talked about how we see God as both maternal and paternal. It is Father's Day today. I am reminded of how I have often prayed to Father God, to Abba. God wants us in communion with him during every moment of our day, not just when we break bread, but through the joys and the challenges of our daily lives as well. His words were and are, remember me. It's an invitation to a relationship. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. No one who finds me will ever be hungry again. Those believing in me will never thirst. We gather around these symbols of bread and wine, elements really, of both the hope that supports us and the power of God's love. Let us pray. Loving God, you are as close to us as our breath. Your love surrounds us and is available to all. Thank you. We remember on the night when Jesus and the disciples had their last meal. Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take and eat it and remember me. In the same way, he took the cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to the disciples, saying, drink this, all of you. This cup is the new eternal hope poured out for you and for many. Do this as often as you drink it to remember the hope that is found in me. In the symbol of the cup, we participate in the new life and hope Jesus brings. Let us pray. We give thanks, loving God, that you have refreshed us with your love at your table. Help us to be stronger in our faith 
increase our love for others beyond our own view of the world. May we go out into the world to plant seeds of transformation, affirmation, hope, and above all, love. Amen. So let us pray for Sarah today. She's speaking to us. God bless Sarah in speaking to us today that she will be strengthened and encouraged and that we will be filled with your love, God, as we take these words into our hearts today. Amen. 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 Thank you, guys. I love that image that um, God is that little white speck that we think of, but so much more. Love that. All right, so today is Father's Day. So happy Father's Day to all the fathers, uncles, grandfathers, trans fathers, father figures, the wanting to be fathers, they used to be fathers, and those who assume the role. However, I'm not going to talk about Father's Day. <laughs> nah, we won't do that. I am going to talk about families, though, slightly more generally, because all the passages have families and familial relations in them. And as a kind of thread running through them, they reference parents, children, family lines, and how we interact with each other and the responsibilities that we have towards one another. I understand that everyone comes at this topic with their own lenses. Everyone has ways of seeing this that could be helpful or unhelpful. We all have different ways of looking at this stuff. Um, it might be a joyful topic to you. Uh, family might be a painful memory of something in the past or even a painful thing that's still ongoing. Um, and I hope to encourage not to trigger today, but there is bound to be a spectrum of response to this kind of subject because everybody's family is different. As a kid, when we're growing up, we think that our family is the way that every family is. And it turns out that's not actually the case. Um, there are many, many forms of family with all kinds of positions on the scale from fantastically, beautifully functional to ugly, dysfunctional nightmares like there's a massive span and then we consciously or unconsciously as we grow older we kind of break from what went before us um, and where we come from as we learn more and more about ourselves the world and our place in it and we see other ways that this whole idea of family could play out um are you seeing the whole screen or are you just seeing my little head here you're seeing the whole screen with the picture of the circle, the whole thing. Okay, fantastic. I'm just seeing the top, like, top corner. So I'm like, I don't really you're seeing the whole thing, but you are, that's great. Okay, so we are stepping into what the church calendar calls ordinary time. See that down here? This is ordinary time. This is the story of the people of God. The church year has a wheel and it kind of keeps turning, keeps rotating around. It starts in Advent at the end of November, beginning of December. And then we run through to Christmas, Epiphany, where the church goes, oh, my goodness, I see. Or, aha, we call it Epiphany. Um, and then the fast of Lent and the journey with Jesus into the wilderness through Holy Week to Easter, Resurrection, Ascension, the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, and then the mystery of the Trinity. And then we're in ordinary time, which is where um, we are now. And the lectionary takes us through the rest of the year until we get to Advent and we start all over again. I love this whole thing. It just keeps going around and around. It reminds us who Jesus is, tells us who we are, reminds us who Jesus is, tells us who we are, reminds us who Jesus is, tells us who we are, and on and on forever. 
Gaffney says that this season of ordinary time is focused on the growth of the church historically, and right now on the growth of her members. My hope for this season, oh, oops, my hope for this season is that we might grow in love. Love for God, love for each other, love for the created world, love for all and every single thing. Because if we don't come out loving better, then I'm not sure why we bother. Like, really, that's what we're here for. There is much too much hate in the name of God, like Eden said this morning. There is much too much of that. And I hope that we can be a counter to that somehow in a little way. In the lectionary that we're using, um, Wilda Gaffney has chosen to focus on the Old Testament stories of Ruth and Samuel and Kings and to use those stories to then choose other Bible passages. And this week in the story of the people of God, we have a couple of passages that I want to look at and think about how we might love better using the model of family as a starting point. The first passage is about the story of the ancient people of God. And the second is instructions <coughs> that Paul gives to Timothy, who was a young leader in the church in Ephesus, a little bit after the time of Jesus, in a letter that may or may not have been written by Paul. But first, there is the earlier passage in Ruth. This is Ruth. Well, I mean, it's a picture. Um, last week, Myron told the story of Ruth. And I'm just going to whip through a speedy recap in case you weren't there or in case you were distracted by things going on throughout that time. Bless him. Myron did an amazing job of keeping going. Um, and I don't want to presume that you know this story. So uh, in the words of Inigo Montoya, there is too much. Let me sum up. There was a time when Israel didn't have kings to rule over them, but they had leaders. Uh, the book of Ruth is a story of something that happened during that time, before there were kings in Israel. There wasn't enough food in the land of Judah, which seems to be a catalyst for quite a lot of stories of the people of God and people moving from place to place. So Elimelech from the tribe of Ephraim left his home in Bethlehem. Your ears prick up. We know that place. And he left Bethlehem and went to live for a little while in the country of Moab. When he was in Moab, Elimelech died and his wife Naomi was left with her two sons, Marlon and Chilion. They married Moabite women because, you know, they were handy, um, Orpah and Ruth, and then Naomi's sons died as well, leaving the three women destitute in a foreign land. Moab had been home to Orpah and Ruth, but because they'd married Marlon and Chilion, they had been bought into Elimelech's family and no longer belonged to their own. And so all three of them were rootless in Moab. Naomi heard that food was now growing back at home and now a destitute widow, she decided the only thing to do was to head back. She released Orpah and Ruth and said, listen, you guys, just go back to your families. You don't have to come with me. But uh, so and Orpah left, but Ruth stayed. And so Ruth and Naomi headed back to Bethlehem. Ruth, when they got there, volunteered to go and pick barley from the edges of the fields, as the poor people did. But when Boaz, who was a relative of Elimelech, saw her and found out that she was Naomi's daughter-in-law, he told her to harvest with his workers and not just pick from the edges like a beggar. Boaz treated Ruth kindly because she'd shown respect and kindness to Naomi, and Ruth was allowed to work alongside Boaz's crew until the end of the harvest season. Then we get to the, the, uh, the story that Myron told last week. The barley was all gathered in, and Boaz was threshing the wheat at the, har at the threshing floor, dealing with the harvest. Naomi instructed Ruth to go and lie with Boaz. Uh, um, as Myron said yesterday, she groomed her uh, last week. And she did what her mother-in-law told her to do. 
Boaz was flattered, but he knew that he wasn't the closest relative and offered to settle the matter and marry her if the other guy wasn't interested in buying the land. The other guy said he was happy to buy the land. But when Boaz told him, OK, what well, the deal is, you have to marry Ruth the, Moab, the Moabite as well. He went, oh, no, 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 no. OK, over to you. You're on. Um, and so he handed him his sandal, which was the way that they passed over the deal. And Boaz got to marry Ruth and buy the land. In that culture, the giving of a sandal was like the deal is official. I wonder if everybody was walking around sandalless. I don't know how that works. Anyway, uh, now we're on to the text for today. So then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, today you are witnesses that I am acquiring all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belongs to Chilion and Marlon from the hand of Naomi. Also Ruth, the Moabite, the wife of Marlon, am I acquiring for myself as my wife to maintain the dead man's name on his inheritance, to establish the name of the deceased on his heritable property, that it may not be cut off from his kin and from the gate of his native place. Today you are all witnesses. All the women and men who were at the gate, along with the elders, said, We are witnesses. May the faithful God grant that the woman who is coming into your house be like Rachel and Leah. The two of them built up the house of Israel. May you prosper in Ephrathah and establish a lineage in Bethlehem. And may your house, through the children that the font of the fount of life will give you by this young woman, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar gave birth to for Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, but as his own for a wife. He came to her and the source of life granted her a pregnancy and she gave birth to a son. And the women said to Naomi, blessed be the faithful God who has not deprived you this day of next of kin. And may the child's name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a provider in your latter years. For your daughter-in-law has given birth to him. She who loves you, she who is more to you than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and she fostered him. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse, the father of David. Ruth the Moabite, through her willingness to stay with Naomi, became the great grandmother of David, who would become King David. Ruth honored his mother-in-law. Boaz, honoured his dead relative Elimelech and kept the land and family name going through him um, with even with his death and the death of his sons. Because when that happened, his family line could have ended. But Boaz bought the land and the women and Elimelech's family line survived. There is honour, there is respect and there is responsibility appropriately taken in this story. There are multiple generations affected here. Ruth and Naomi are widows. And their widowhood is not just about their small family. It's a community thing. It matters to everybody. And the responsibility which Boaz took on secures the generation to come that includes King David. And it folds Ruth, who's a foreigner, into the story of kings and ultimately of Jesus. There is honor and respect and responsibility. These are standards for a family in their culture. Now let's flip to the New Testament and 1 Timothy. Paul, who may or may not have been the author of 1 Timothy, is definitely the voice in the letters. Like, even if it's somebody who's pretending to be Paul, it sounds a bit like Paul. It has the, They're not sure it's definitely Paul, but it's somebody who's kind of like in Paul's people. But anyway, they're writing to Timothy. 
Um, and it's kind of it's a letter to a younger man that he's mentoring. They could be described as faithful instructions for faithful friends to keep the household of faith in good order. Paul, or like I said, someone who was speaking with Paul's voice, says this at the beginning of 1 Timothy. Love is the purpose of my command. Love comes from the heart, from a pure heart. It comes from a good sense of what is right and wrong. It comes from faith that is honest and true. So let's just add that to the picture. There was honour, respect, responsibility and love. Capital L-O-V-E. There are a bunch of instructions breaking that down into specifics. And then we get to today's passage that is about how to treat others in the church. And it's this. It says, correct an older man in a way that shows respect. Make an appeal to him as if he were your father. Treat younger men as if they were your brothers. Treat older women as if they were your mothers. Treat younger women as if they were your sisters. Be com completely pure in the way that you treat them. Daphne translates it this way. Do not rebuke an elder man, but speak to him as a father. To those younger as brothers, to elder women as mothers, to younger women as sisters in absolute purity. I think Paul realized uh, that women were vulnerable. The in absolute purity part, I think it's important that was put in there. The story of the people of God is a story of family. Paul's instructions to Timothy are to treat everyone in the gathered church in Ephesus with respect, with a sense of responsibility towards them, and with love as he would family members. I can only really talk to the culture that I'm part of, and I don't want to presume that I uh, to, that everyone listening is of the same culture at all. Um, but I, I can only really speak to mine and comment on my perception of others that I might hope to learn from. I was sitting next to Nathan and Sylvia Newdorf yesterday at a table and the Mennonite game went off. If you've been at a table of gathered Mennonites, it's a game. Um, I, I find it fascinating. That culture seems to need to know where you're from, who you're connected with, which family, which branch, which type of Mennonite. And it's about placing people in context and kind of lining them up and going, oh, okay, now I know who you are and where you come from and who your people are. Um, it's fascinating to me. My original family culture didn't do that. Each family seems to stand alone in my culture, not form part of an intricate web like the Mennonites do. The culture I grew up in was a nuclear family based model. A nuclear, I think that's funny, it's called nuclear. Like, is it like violent? Explosive? I don't know. Anyway, um, a couple and their children are seen as the basic social unit. Around the age of 9, 10, 11, I remember a slightly more feral existence where we travelled in a pack, like a bunch of kids in our neighbourhood, and anyone's mum could be the one to bandage a knee or to feed, a, feed them, all of them. Like, we'd just kind of walk through like locusts, clean up, move on. Um, but at the end of the day, we returned to our own homes, to the small social unit that we called a family. My cousins on my mum's side, they lived in this multi-generational house in North London. They lived in the basement flat, my aunt and uncle, my two cousins. And then in the middle was my grandparents. They lived in two floors, I think it was maybe one, maybe two. But anyway, they were massive. They, they seemed huge to me. Two floors there. And then my unmarried aunt lived in the, like, the attic space up above. I love to visit that house and be able to move between the generations and the households. 
When I was a kid, I wished that we could live that way too. Other cultures operate differently to this small nuclear, nuclear, it's hard to say that, family model. Some cultures see the family as a much larger unit with multiple generations living together, more like my cousins did, but even more so. Some cultures take it further and see children as the responsibility of everyone, not just of their biological parents, a little bit like the way we traveled as a pack and anyone's mom was there for us when we needed them, not just our own. I wonder if it might not benefit many children to be raised in a culture where they're supported by many adults, not just their biologicals. I think the church could learn from this too. I think it's one way that we can learn to love well. We had a young Sikh man in our house cleaning carpets one time uh, with his father and the young man called down the stairs to me to ask a question and he called me auntie. And I just love that he used that to get my attention. It's a beautiful thing in his culture to call older women auntie and older men uncle. It's a sign of respect and it's a sign of familiarity. And it brings to mind the idea that it takes a village to raise a child. Not having had children of my own, I am happy to be part of a village like that. I am very happy to be called auntie and to take on that role. I have nephews. And as of two weeks ago, I have a grand niece as well. Um, I have godsons and other children, even more informally connected, who call me auntie. And I love being an extra in their lives. I love being like a bonus grown up. I love being able to give them time and energy when I have it, an ear, money or help when they need it. It is my privilege to love on them. I've also had the delight of hanging out with a great number of children over, I worked this out, I did the math, it's insane, 33 years of pastoring children and families. That's a very long time. Um, I feel like an auntie, probably now a great auntie in this setting too, as those children have had children of their own. Um, and I, I, it's been my privilege and my pleasure to do so. Uh, the psalm this week has been like an anchor through that whole time. And it says this. Give ear, my people, to my teaching. Incline your ear to the utterances of my mouth. Not that bit, the next bit. And it says, I will open my mouth and tell a story. I will utter riddles from of old, which we have heard and known, and which our mothers and fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our, their daughters and sons. We will recount to generations to come the praiseworthy deeds of she who speaks life and her might and the wonderful work she has done. That's been like my my mantra, my, this is what I'm about. I will open my mouth to tell a story. I will recount to generations to come the praiseworthy deeds of she who speaks life and her might and the wonderful work she has done. That's Wilda Gaffney again. I love the way she uh, feminizes God for us. Throughout the journey of deconstruction that our part of the church has been doing, along with many other parts too, um, but not all of them, um, I have just kept asking that question. What do we tell our children? What do we teach them? Are there building blocks that we could put in place now that they won't have to dismantle later? I know that everybody goes through this thing of, you know, you start off believing one thing, you have like your black and white view, and then you mature and you kind of, you can you grasp another layer. And so there is a certain amount of deconstructing that has to do, but I don't know that it needs to be all be violent. Um, I don't know that it all has to be so explosive. I wonder if there's ways that we can build layers that kids will be able to build on and build on and build on and not have to go, oh, no, that one's not, that one's rubbish. I'm taking that one fully out. I, that's my, my thing has been what what can we what foundation can we put in there that might stand them in good stead as they grow 
from the black and white view of how they see the world now through their teen years and into young adulthood where everything starts to become more nuanced. Can we give them something to build on that they don't have to thoroughly take apart, but actually build on? My aim is to tell the stories of she who speaks life, not shying away from the mysteries, being okay with saying, I don't know, what do you think? with pointing out wherever I can how amazing our creator is and how they are revealing themselves everywhere in the great big massive things and the small tiny little things. And at all times, I want the children to know that they're loved, period. I don't want all of you guys to know that too, if you're not sure, you are loved, period. Um, and that we are here to love as well. The instruction that Paul gave to Timothy was to treat younger people as brothers and sisters. He wouldn't actually have applied that to children because children were not actually not people in his society, but they are now. And so sons and daughters or nephews and nieces is how we should treat them. So let me repeat again my hope for this season as we take around, as we go around towards Advent again, that we might learn to grow in love. My hope is that that is what we might do. Love for God, love for each other, love for the created world, love for all and every single thing. Because like I said at the start, if we don't come out loving better, then I'm not sure why we're here. There is much too much hate in the name of God, and I hope that we can be a counter to that with love. Okay, I am gonna end with a little poemy prayer that I wrote sort of a poem, sort of a prayer. And it goes like this. There is too much hate in the name of love. Instead, may love be our song, our breath, our life. May we grow through love, with love, in love. May love be the air around us, breathing in and breathing out. Rushed at first, we grasp, we gasp for air, but then slowing, we realize there is plenty, there is enough. We are enough, love is enough. May love forever be our story and our underlying melody. So my question today is, how can we love better? And could there be a family model that would help us do that? And if your own family model was, was dysfunctional, as many of them are, and honestly, all families have some form of dysfunction, then choose another model. There are many varieties of family to choose from. So how can we love better? And could a family model help us figure out how to do that? Thanks, Sarah. Amen. Wow. That's a lot of food for thought. I just want to close with a benediction. So dear family, let us each go into this week with the understanding and the deep knowing that we belong in God's family. May we have eyes that see siblings who don't know that they belong or have been pushed out of the family. And God, give us courage to stand up and defend and come alongside those you have created that don't know your love and don't know you are love. Mm -hmm. 
that we may grow in love. Amen. <laughs>